Paul is saying in these chapters, because we've been studying through the book of Romans, and we saw at the very beginning of the book, he addressed words to the Gentile believers in the city of Rome, and then he's turned to address those of the Judaistic religion who have been converted to Christ and those who remain opposed to the message of the kingdom. And so now in these verses, 9 through 11, he's going to take up this rather challenging issue, one that's sort of the, the uh, camel with its nose in the tent. If, if the Gentiles have been brought into God's covenant, uh, something that, like we talked about in the Sunday school class this morning that uh, Bill mentioned in the study in First Peter, that many of the prophets were probably not too happy about the fact that God was going to be bringing the Gentiles in once they kind of got an understanding of what God's greater program was. And the classic example that he cited was from the book of Jonah. You know, God has told Jonah, I'm going to redeem these people, I'm going to save these people, and Jonah's like, no way, I don't like those people, I'm not doing that. Uh, that's kind of a par- that's the paraphrased edition of uh, the book of Jonah. Um, so we find this sort of theme continuing on through all through Scripture, where God's plan is this one great thing, where it starts out here and then continues to expand. But the plan of the people who corrupted that understanding, uh, who promoted the religion of the Jews, was no, it, it never was going to get like that. It's only going to stay here with us in this little small group of people. So Paul addresses this in Romans 9 through 11, and it's maybe under the larger heading of, well, what about Israel? If God is bringing gracious to the Gentiles and he's bringing them into the kingdom, what about these people who have been people of the book, people of the covenant? Um, Are they still the, quote, chosen people of God in light of this? So before I give you what I believe is the correct biblical answer to that question, what about Israel? Are they still the chosen people of God in light of what God has been doing with the Gentiles and, and what Paul is writing in Romans? Let's do some background work first. Um, the hold of the Older Testament contains many promises that God made to the nation of Israel. But those promises were very distinctive and were of a very specific character. They were messianic promises. That is, promises that were tied to what was then the future coming of the Messiah, Christ Jesus. Uh, For example, uh, the promise of the new covenant. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Some of these I'll read myself. Some I'll ask you to turn to. But in the interest of time and convenience, we'll kind of go back and forth from that approach. Jeremiah 31 31 to 34, Um, an example of the promise of the covenant that was made to the Hebrew people. Uh, Anyone have that? Okay, Mike, you have it? Go ahead. Uh, 31, 31 to 34. Behold, things are coming, declares the Lord. So now we'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with your fathers in the day I took by the hand to bring them out of the land. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, 
and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Okay, so here then is a clear prediction of both a new covenant and thereby a new concept or a new configuration of what had been understood to be Israel. The old would be swept aside and something new would take its place. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12. Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12. And I will read these verses, but I'd like for you to follow along. Matthew 3, 7 through 12. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We read here, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up stones to, uh, to, these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, anyone listening to John the Baptizer say that at that time understood very clearly this is a proclamation of God doing something different, of there being a seismic shift in what God is doing and the forward movement of what had been the plan from the very beginning. He speaks of the wrath that was to come upon Israel in those days. Now, if uh, the Jewish nation was to become the object of God's wrath, as John said, then what happens to all the promises that God made to Israel? This is what Paul is speaking of in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Well, for one thing, um, and I think it's important that we understand this very clearly. You know, I had been studying eschatology for a long time, and maybe it's just a, an example of my own lack of ability. I don't know. But I was having a conversation with Dr. Gentry, our former pastor here, many years ago, and he just happened to point this out to me, and it's like, I never saw this. Turn to Joshua chapter 21. Joshua 21, and follow along as I read verses 43 to 45. So, you know, the first thing that we have to understand is that in terms of the promises that God made to Israel, well, all of those promises have been fulfilled. All of them. You say, well, where do you get that idea? Well, you get it from Holy Scripture. Uh, in Joshua 21, 43 to 45, thus says Jehovah, the Lord, uh, excuse me, thus he gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord has given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass. Hard stop, end of story. All the promises God made to Old Covenant Israel had come to pass in, in terms of these you know, territorial dynamics and that sort of thing. So the nation of Israel was intended 
to, excuse me, I should say, never intended to be God's ultimate people. He had something else in mind, something which the nation of Israel typified and pointed toward. Israel was a type or a shadow of the larger purpose and the blueprint of what God had in mind from the very beginning. Now, Paul and the New Testament writers teach emphatically that Israel's purpose in God's plan was temporary and was intended to give way to better things. Israel was a shadow. The church is the body, which is better, the shadow of something or the actual body of it. Paul talks about this in Colossians 2.16. We're not going to look at that, but he, he makes that comparison there. And then uh, Paul said that in his ministry, he preached nothing except the hope of Israel. He mentions this, it's mentioned of him in, in the book of Acts. And yet Paul never, ever preached a nationalistic restoration of Israel. And the idea of a restored Israel as a nationalistic ethnic entity is a modern myth, as most of us know in here, created by the likes of John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield and the dispensational method of interpretation. And from the standpoint of biblical and redemptive history, Israel, as a, a specifically covenant redemptive vehicle of God's grace, it ceased to exist after A.D. 70. Now, this raises a question, well, what is Paul talking about in Romans 9, 10, and 11? Because he talks about Israel, the, the, all the, the, the Jews coming into the covenant when the appointed time of the Gentiles is over, um, God's promises to them. And now, depending on how you interpret New Testament eschatology, it's going to determine how you understand these things. Now, for myself, I think he's talking about that time period between the ascension of Christ and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That's the time frame when he's saying all of Israel is going to be, quote, saved. Now, what happens after that is a, is a different story. But in terms of what Paul is writing here, uh, I believe that the appointed number and all of the things that he's talking about relating to Old Covenant Israel was fulfilled within that generational 40-year period. Now, let's look, uh, let's back up here and say that the whole of the Old Testament is filled with promises that God made to Israel in that sense. Um, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, and let's look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Deuteronomy 7, 6, 7, and 8, and I'll ask someone to volunteer to read that passage. You have it, Kim? Please, go ahead. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a precious people unto himself, above all people that are upon the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor chose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, the Lord hath brought you out of a mighty hand, and delivered you out of the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, of Pharaoh king of Egypt. So, this is a very important thing that the Lord proclaims here, that... He did not choose these people because they were, quote, Jews. He chose them just because of his predestinating, electing love. And they became the people of Israel. You know, somehow, you know, people have gotten this thing mixed up and, and, and backwards, so to speak. Uh, but clearly, these people who would become the Israelites had a very privileged position. Now, let's turn to the book of Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 9. 
Romans chapter 9. And uh, Bill, I'll ask you to read these verses. Romans 9, verses 4 through 5, 4 and 5. Right. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. However, and here, allow me to say it once more, it was God's plan that the time would come when the exclusive nation would give way to the inclusive nation. Now, I realize that last term has a lot of weight to it in our culture today. Um, but you understand what I mean. It's, it's, it's inclusive in the sense, like you were talking about in Sunday school today, Bill, the prophets didn't understand this. What do you mean uh, go to these people and, and preach the message to them? Inclusive in the sense that God is saving all kinds of people not just people with a particular last name. The physical nation would find fulfillment not in a continued exclusiveness, but in universal inclusiveness in Christ Jesus. Jew and Gentile would come together in one body in Christ. Now listen as I read. Um, this is sort of a paraphrase of Ephesians 1. Um, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan that at the right time he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God, and now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he had... He identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. So this is the message that Paul, uh, the faithful Pharisee himself of the tribe of Benjamin, who he, he preached only the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. And to suggest like uh, these unsavory characters like John Hagee and David Jeremiah and all these people, that um, the hope of Israel will be to restore its temple one day in the current land and all that, um, when the supposedly taking over. Uh, th this is a proclamation of there being a barrier to Gentiles. It is the reestablishment establishment of everything Paul said the Lord has done away with. And yet these very distinctions are the things that Paul fought to destroy by preaching the message of one body in Christ Jesus. And um, as most of us know, the dispensationalists tell us that in the millennial age, the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system, all of that will be restored. However, nowhere in the New Testament is there a prophecy of a restoration of a national ethnic Israel. It's just not there. And you've got to do, uh, as somebody I once heard say, a lot of hermeneutical yoga to try to twist this thing around like you know, into a pretzel to make it say anything remotely like that. Now... In case, even to this point, the implications of this are not clear to you or anyone else, let me be more specific because this strikes at the very heart of the Christian message. So the following are some of the implications of advocating uh, a restored Old Covenant Israel and the temple system. 
It would mean going from the reality back to the shadow. That is talked about in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Uh, the old system pointed forward to the new and was intended to endure only until the new covenant of Christ had come. The old covenant temple was only a shadow of the heavenly temple, according to Hebrews chapter 9. Um, it would mean turning from the true worship of God to an obsolete worship in an imperfect temple made by human hands. And it would mean the end of Christ's exclusive priesthood. Jesus cannot be a priest on earth under the old covenant law. Um, and I, I, we're not going to read it, but if you want to jot down Hebrews 8, 1 to 6, it clearly teaches that very thing. Hebrews 8, 1 to 6. According to the Bible, Jesus is a priest forever, and that prohibits any reestablishment of an old covenant system. And for God to once again accept Judaistic religion and its sacrifices would be a rejection of the sacrifice of Christ. Do we believe that God is going to one day reject his own son's blood to return to the blood of bulls and goats? This is what these people are advocating. It is, all, it is almost blasphemous. God never had pleasure in the old covenant sacrifices anyway, according to the book of Hebrews. And please note well that Paul is only elaborating in Romans 9, 10, and 11, uh, and in Ephesians. He's only enlarging upon what Jesus himself had been teaching and warning about all through his earthly ministry. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. And let's locate verses 18 and 19. Matthew 21, 18, and 19. Michelle, do you have it? Would you read it, please? Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. He said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree withered away. So here the fig tree is used as a symbol of the nation of Israel. And throughout its history, God's uh, constantly hungered for his people to bring forth fruit. And um, the gospel writers spoke here of the physical hunger of Jesus as symbolic of God's hunger for fruit from his people. And Jesus pronounces a very clear curse on Israel here because of their failure to bear fruit and their ultimate rejection of him. And many of Jesus' parables, if you've studied them carefully, it's interesting, uh, they refer to the rejection of Israel and thus their destruction. I'll tell you, people who, who did not miss that and who had no doubt that that's what he was saying, that's the Pharisees. That's why whenever they heard him say many of these parables, they got enraged and wanted to beat him up and stone him to death. Um, I'll just read this passage myself. Matthew 21, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower. Well, who's the vineyard? Who, who are the vineyard? In Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, it tells us the vineyard is Israel. And then in Matthew 21, uh, 35 to 39, and the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Now, somebody tell me, who is he referring to here? What's he talking about? church leaders 
I mean, the church, as we know it, had not been established at this point. So what, who would he be talking about? Bill, you know, who was he talking about? It's the religious leaders, the, the prophets. The prophets, yeah. All, well, he's referring, they're the target. But when he's saying that the vine, the vine dresser sent his servants, they killed him, then they sent other servants, and he, t- he continued to send all of these people, these prophets. That's, he's saying the Lord has sent all these people to you. And then in the parable he says, Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. So he's prophesying what the Jews would do to him. And then he continues in the latter part of the chapter, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? When the leaders of Israel are responsible for the murder of the son of uh, the Lord God, Jesus Christ, what is the Lord going to do? They said to him, these Pharisees who heard him tell the story, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And I can tell you, they probably did not do cartwheels after he said that to them. Anybody remember what a cartwheel is? Most people don't know about cartwheels nowadays, I guess. Um, He tells them very clearly that because of their rejection of him, the kingdom of God will be taken from them. And then he goes, there are many other parables that we we can cite. Um, Let's turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And let's look at verses 4 through 7. Matthew 22, 4 through 7. In the first three verses, uh, the king referred to here is symbolic of God. The Son is Christ. And those invited are the nation of Israel, the leaders of Israel in particular. And then he continues in Matthew 22, 4 through 7. Uh, let's see. Joshua, do you have that? Can you read it? 4 through 7? Yes. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. They made light of it and went their way. One to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. You know, um, I suppose if you've never had the privilege of having your mind expanded to understand the significance of the preteristic nature of New Testament prophecy, you you could just skip right over this, but I don't see how anyone can miss what's being talked about here. This is clearly a prediction of the AD 70 judgment on Jerusalem. If you look down at the next several verses, 8 through 10, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding the feast as many as you find And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
So Israel lost its privilege, and all nations were invited to come to the wedding celebration of the Lamb. And this new covenant, or excuse me, this is a new covenant, and the new covenant has produced a new Israel. Now, legitimate Bible scholars have attempted to correct the profound misinterpretations of what these verses teach by many dispensational teachers. And, you know, the response to these corrections on the part of some of these folks has been, well, look, if what you say is true, then that means God has failed in the promises that he made to the nation of Israel. But that's simply not true. It is absolutely not true. I mean, you've already read the passage from Joshua where it says he's already fulfilled all the promises. But the reason why the rejection of an ethnic national Israel is not a failure on the part of the divine promise is because the promise was never addressed merely to the natural descendants of Abraham, whatever that may mean. You know, that, that's supposedly clear in the minds of some folks, but this is a, an entirely different section of this discussion and this argument and, and this uh, dialogue about what is it that actually constitutes ethnic Israel. It's not so clear-cut as you might think. A very controversial book was published, um, not because nobody had ever said this before, but in Israel, the modern state of Israel itself, by an Israeli scholar called The Invention of the Jewish People. This man himself was a Jew, and it was a fabulously big bestseller in Israel, and, and it was very, very controversial because he made the argument, and I think he had some very good uh, reasoning behind it, that... The, the people known today as the Jews, they don't bear much uh, connection with the people of the old, what we call the, the Israelites of the Old Testament. I'm not going to get into all that, but the point is that the, this is a very uh, murky area, and that's one reason it's never intended to be natural descendants. The promise was always to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, that is to the church. The church is not a temporary interruption in God's plan for Israel. Uh, the church is the prophetic fulfillment of that program because the church is the true Israel. Uh, covenant, not race, has always been the defining mark of the true Israel of God. And Paul wrote, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And in saying that, he, he intended to show that the covenantal promise of God did not have respect to Israel after the flesh, but to the true Israel, uh, believers in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the unbelief and rejection of ethnic Israel has, uh, as a whole, in no way interfered with the fulfillment of God's covenant promises being fulfilled. Uh, the word of God, therefore, has not been violated. But will, to get back to the basic thrust of Romans 9, 10, and 11, will God keep his promises to Israel? Yes, of course he will. But those promises are spiritual. They're not physical. Um, turn to the book of the prophet Zechariah. And we're coming down to the, the, to the wire here so I can uh, stop for a moment and take questions and death threats. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 6 through 13. Just look at the, this blessed promise, and you tell me, who does this refer to? Zechariah chapter 2, verses 6 through 13. Could I have somebody volunteer to read that? Someone. Okay, Mike. Come there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. 
foe Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plundered for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So now, if uh, I'm not, I don't mean for you to literally do this. But if you would turn to the beginning of the New Testament and rip out all the pages from your Bible from Matthew to Revelation 22, you could read what he just read from Zechariah in a dispensational way. But you've got to destroy Holy Scripture in order to do it. If there was no New Testament in our Bibles, you might make some case for some ethnic fulfillment to what God said. But there is a New Covenant, a New Testament in our Bibles. And certainly, if God makes a promise, we can count on him keeping it. But we have a responsibility to make sure that we have properly understood what those promises are and not misinterpret them. And the basic thrust of what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to condense it down into one short statement, a new covenant means a new Israel, and it's made up of all kinds of people who are brought into the kingdom by God's grace and who trust in Christ alone for their salvation and who are renewed by his Holy Spirit. So... That's what I wanted to share with you.